0: Helena, when did you first come across drugs, if ever?
1: Me? What? Drugs? Never. End of podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, I first encountered weed in the kind of last two years of school. And then anything kind of more than weed that was at university. So I guess when I was about 18, but pre any of that, the education, if you can call it that, looking back of what I got about drugs was like, you know, Mean Girls, when the guy is like, if you have sex, you will get chlamydia and die. <laughs> like, I genuinely thought if I was near any yeah. drugs, I would die. Yeah. I thought that.
0: Yeah. And what was once really terrifying is now, I think it's fair to say, fairly normal when we look around us. Hmm. I don't think anyone I know thinks that if they touch a drug they will die. Well no. And that's because most of them have tried it. Well yeah and see I thought we were supposed to be at war with drugs. You're not wrong. Ever since President Richard Nixon's historic press conference in 1971... The US has led a global campaign against psychoactive substances. So I'm quite aware of the war on drugs in America, I feel like we've
1: seen a lot of TV or news about the consequences of that war. The militarisation of US police, racial inequality in US prisons, but what about the war on drugs in the UK?
0: It's interesting. I actually think a lot of people conflate the war on drugs with the US and don't know much about its impact in their own country. Did you know, for example, that there is actually a greater disproportionality in the number of black people in prisons in the UK than in the US?
1: I I wouldn't have guessed that, I did not know that.
0: Yeah, And, And when it comes to sentencing, when it comes to conviction, there is one crime that accounts for this discrepancy more than any other. Can you guess what that is? It's not drugs. Exactly. The war on drugs has been a trademark of pretty much every British government ever since the 70s. And we've seen many of the same consequences here as in the US.
1: One of which I guess is more drugs than ever before.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, actually, yes. Metrics of drug use and drug fatalities have gone up.
1: So have we lost the war on drugs?
0: And if so, what comes next? let's go find out i'll look into the dealing side of the story and you look into the using and we'll meet back in the studio
1: with some very special guests to discuss everything around this media store
2: america's public enemy number one is drug abuse
1: the gangs the drug balance
3: the link between drug abuse and crime just say no choose life drugs are menacing our society they're killing our children it is necessary to wage a new, all-out offensive. Say
4: hello to my little friend.
1: Welcome to MediaStorm, the news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last.
0: I'm Matilda Mallinson. And I'm Helena Wadia. This week's investigation, the UK's war on drugs, politics and prohibition. Black Jack. okay. I am in Camden, London. And I'm about to go do a pickup, which is what you call buying drugs from a street dealer. I got this guy's number from one of his regular clients, which is how these things tend to work. Hey. We brought you Just here. Is it 40 or
4: 40? Okay.
0: I might have 25. After a lot of back and forth, I managed to persuade a dealer to speak to us. But to protect his anonymity, the interview is voiced by an actor. My first question is, how did you get into
4: dealing? It wasn't like a conscious decision. It just sort of happens. You grow up surrounded by it. It's the goals you'd have since you're small. It's the people you look up to. It's literally where you get your pocket money from when you're young.
0: How young are we talking here?
4: Twelve, to thirteen.
0: Oh my god, thirteen.
4: Yeah, welcome to my world. <laughs>
0: And what is it that you sell?
4: Coke, Mandy, ket, weed.
0: So for wider listener benefit, cocaine, MDMA, which is ecstasy, ketamine and cannabis. Yeah. Do you ever feel guilty about the work that you do?
4: I, I reckon it's like lots of people in lots of jobs. Mostly no. At the end of the day, we all have to put our bread on the table or whatever. Sometimes oh. I have moments like I worry about if the stuff could be impure. And someone might get hurt. Maybe sometimes I feel bad when selling it to someone who's clearly very sick, really addicted. But the reality is, most of my customers are happy, grateful, they're having fun. When you meet addicts, you can sort of see there are hundred thousand reasons why they're obsessed with drugs. Like that, the life is hard. They have mental problems. They've got no joys in life. And I, I ain't responsible for that shitty world.
0: Okay, so you see it basically like a regular job, not a criminal job.
4: Look, well, kind of. I mean. If I was a banker, would you ask me if I felt guilty about my work? <laughs> if, if, if I was a police officer, would you ask me if I felt guilty?
0: Surely, though, you must worry about getting arrested. That is something that comes with the job.
4: Yeah, of course. But, well, firstly, prison is something that's, I don't want to say normal, but, yeah, more normal to people like me. This is saying in in um, our neighbourhood. ...prison or dead... ...it's like the lesser of two evils in many cases... (laughs) ...that in itself feels kind of stupid... ...or unfair... ...feels unfair... ...because people want drugs... ...people who will never go to jail... ...and the fact of this world is... ...if the demand is there... ...someone's gonna meet that demand... ...someone's gonna do that work... ...it's illegal work... ...it's high-risk work... ...so who are the people that are gonna take those risks... ...those of us who see the risk as worthy... ...because it's the best dice we've got... ...to roll in life
0: and is the risk worth it
4: what like financially I mean yeah <laughs> the money's good it's a lot better than if you slave away in the shitty jobs available like that's not even a comparison and I won't have to do it forever because of that one day I'll have saved enough and I'll, I'll leave it's a risk but it's not a forever risk
0: do you ever worry about worse than being arrested, about the risk of violence or even death?
4: I told you already, prison or death. Mm,
0: I heard that in the prison investigation I did. I heard the same saying. Yeah, I bet
4: you have. Know, I've lost friends. I've been stabbed. But that, that's not just the drugs. That's like the world. The drugs are uh, a symptom of the same thing as the violence is In our societies. certain people are in charge, scary fucking people. And the police, the police don't protect us. They treat us as... The problem, when the police don't protect you, you protect yourself. Oh, you join in. You play the game.
0: Okay. What can you tell me about your clients? Like age, class, race?
4: I sell a range of drugs so I get a bit of a mix. Mostly students for weed. Otherwise, I'd say the majority are posh, older, white guys. For the class A's, bankers, whatever. But mate, I'll, I'll get all over town and night's work. It's a pandemic, you know. It's like corona.
0: Final question. If you could pick one thing, what do you want the public to understand about being a dealer?
4: I'm just a normal guy, okay? I like football, I love me mum. I'm like you, just with different choices.
0: Okay, thank you, let's wrap up there.
4: Hey, you know what? Don't um, Don't use that scary voice thing for, for me, just because that makes me seem like fucking Tartfader. Like some fucking evil alien thing, okay? Just... Used like a normal guy speaking. That's what the general public don't get to see when they think about dealers.
0: Bye. That was easy. Easy, but illegal. Class A, B, and C drugs are not uncommon in the UK, but supplying or producing them could land someone life in prison some can cause extreme addiction and all pose health risks or threaten public safety by lowering users' inhibitions. These dangers dictate our legal response. In December, the government announced a 10-year strategy to combat illegal drug use in full stately regalia.
5: Too many people have their lives blighted by these County Lions gangs.
0: The Prime Minister dressed as a police officer to unleash an all-out war on drugs. It's
5: a long time, really, since you've heard a government say Class A drugs are bad. It
0: is the sixth new government drug strategy announced in the past 25 years. None of them have eradicated drug use. In fact, deaths from drugs in England and Wales are the highest they've been since records began. Scotland boasts the highest drug death rate recorded by any European country by far crackdowns and criminalisation in a society where drug use is common does it work is it fair a
1: rave in London a typical place to dance drink and yes take drugs so how common is taking drugs recreationally we started with our friendship circles and asked them to ask their friendship circles, how normal are drugs? Some of these clips are voiced by actors.
4: Weed and coke and to some degree cat I can, I can secure almost whenever I want. It's so easy.
2: My year group were taking them from when I was 12.
4: I love drugs and I often want them on a night out, but I'm not addicted and I could cut them out at any time. I
1: rely on weed as my most important painkiller, living with chronic pain. I just wish I could relieve my pain without
4: feeling like a criminal. I'd like to describe my drug use as recreational, but it is daily, especially for marijuana.
6: I probably have pot brownies every two or three weeks and
2: other drugs every three months. Drugs are very common just within the social circles I'm in at university and it's not until I go home and I see my friends from school and I realise that actually it's not that normal in all situations.
1: My friends and I take drugs when we're partying at clubs, bars, each
2: other's houses. I used to think we were unusual but now I realise it's probably more uncommon to not, in our age group at least.
4: I definitely describe my use as recreational, even though I take drugs on most nights out. In a lot of ways I think the healthier than alcohol a night out with small bumps of drugs every so often Lots of water, no booze, lots of dancing And I feel fresh as fuck the following morning
0: I first tried class A drugs at a festival After leaving school There were some boys camping with us, friends of friends Who shared their ecstasy with me They knew it was my first time So tested everything themselves Gave me small doses and looked after me the whole time It was nice
4: This use around them that's almost constant Like Whenever I'm out with friends, we smoke weed Sometimes we buy some, some coke or something it's, a, it's quite normal
2: And it's so easy for you to get drugs when you want.
4: Getting drugs is as easy as anything. Dealers numbers get passed around. Most of us have a few dealers we can call on any given night depending where we are and which dealers work in that area.
2: I've tried cocaine once or twice and it was not for me. Probably
4: use Coke twice a month. Recently, I had a little shrooms and cat day with one of my friends. You just
2: phone up a number. You know, you, know, you pick up from them. ...or they drop off to you, it's so easy.
1: Demand for many of the most illegal drugs, like cocaine... ...is largely driven by white, wealthy buyers. But when you look at the demographic breakdown... ...of those imprisoned for meeting that demand... ...the discrepancy is uncomfortable. Our dealer talked about socioeconomic opportunity... ...playing a role in this divide there is also proof of active racism. You're building more prisons, are you crazy? In our earlier episode on criminal justice, we met two black women, Lisa and Shelley, convicted to years in prison on drug offences. Both of them felt that their race, combined with the fact the crime was drug related, led to unfair and discriminatory sentencing. I got done obviously for conspiracy to supply class A drugs. All I was was a courier, right? So I transferred from A to B just for some quick money, basically, because I was struggling. And when we all got arrested, it turned out that there was 11 of us in the ring. Now, I didn't know all these people. All I knew was one person. I've never been in trouble. I've always had a good job. I ended up getting charged with conspiracy to supply class A drugs. They also classed me as an organised crime gang member. I've never been in a gang. You tell me how I get the third highest sentence out of the whole lot. Yeah, I feel like I was discriminated because I was a woman, but more so I feel I was discriminated against because, because I'm black.
5: I was told by my solicitor, don't have your black friends in the public gallery. I'd made a few friends in the Asian community when I was in Stoke as well. I was told not to have them there because of how it will look to the jury.
0: Shelley was given a five-year sentence for conspiracy to import Class A drugs. She'd been involved in the drug trade before and was offered a courier job that would involve picking up a consignment from the airport. But by this point, she was a mother and wanted to stay out of prison. So she connected the employer with a woman she'd met in prison who had done this work before, a white woman. The story, as it was told in the courtroom, was dictated, she feels, in large part by race.
5: The way they had portrayed it was kind of like, we took this vulnerable woman, she was a white lady, and forced her to do things, you know, against her will. It was pointed out that we were both black. And it was believable because we were both black and from Birmingham. And she was a white lady from Stoke. And she ended up getting less than the guidelines. I think the minimum was four years. She ended up getting two and a half years. I ended up getting five and he ended up getting seven, you know. So I think racism played a huge part in that.
0: Lisa and Shelley's accounts may be subjective, anecdotal, but the data supports them, betraying an unavoidable bias behind the sentencing of black women in drug trials. 227 BAME women sent to prison for drug offences for every 100 white women, that was the finding of a seminal investigation in 2017, the David Lammy Review. It exposed clear structural racism in our criminal justice system. And it's not just black women being unfairly sentenced. All white
3: stop and search. I've never seen this in my life. Wow. Black
0: boys are over 10 times more likely than white boys to be arrested for drug offences. So where does this race divide come from? And have we seen improvements since the findings came out? Who better to ask than the man behind that report, David Lammy himself.
5: Drug fences in Britain are usually seen through the lens of gang culture and through the lens of county lines and therefore is strongly associated with violence and turf wars. I did take evidence from young people who talked about the fact that they lived on a housing estate, that neighbourhood policing has largely disappeared. And so in a sense... The gangster that was on the housing estate ran the housing estate. You want to stay alive, you want to stay out of trouble. Very, very quickly, you could get swept up with sort of gang affiliation. And we've got to be careful that we describe them as a gang just because they happen to be based in Brixton or Peckham. Our current prime minister was in a gang. It was called the Bullingdon Club. And actually, they did some pretty terrorising things by all accounts.
0: Is there a case to be made that some of these drug dealers are victims of modern slavery.
5: Yes, when you see a young person traumatized, seeing the violence, fearing recrimination, this is trauma that that's being inflicted on that young person. This is trafficking and it's child trafficking. And this story of pimping is as old as time. Oliver Twist is about the pimping of young people. Yes, the complexion of those young people in a city like London is now often a multicultural face but we spend way too much focus on the young people and not enough focus on the the mr biggs the men in suits who organize the transshipment of the serious amounts of cocaine uh, who most often are not ethnic minorities by the way because nobody thinks That a young person in Mossside, Salford or Tottenham knows how to organise tonnes of cocaine out of Colombia, across the Atlantic, uh, through Spain, Amsterdam and into London. They haven't got that means, they haven't got that network.
0: Since you've published these findings, are you satisfied with the work being done to improve the issues?
5: No, I'm not. In terms of my review, the Lamy Review, which, by the way, was commissioned by a conservative prime minister, David Cameron, and was presented to a conservative prime minister in the shape of Theresa May. Well, those conservative prime ministers took the Lamy Review seriously and were beginning to implement its recommendations. I'm afraid ever since Boris Johnson came in, because of his attitude to issues, particularly of race, I'm very, very concerned. I'm afraid we're having this conversation at a time when these issues have dropped down the political priority list. Of course, society's got to ask bigger questions of what could we have done? How did this happen?
0: What's your immediate reaction to the so-called war on drugs?
5: I think the war on drugs, most commentators would say, has failed. And so that then leads to big questions about why it's failed and what should replace it.
0: And is there space within that for more conversations about drug policy reform, by which I mean decriminalisation?
5: The government made some commitments on the medicinal use of cannabis. Ask someone who is suffering from multiple cirrhosis uh, or has pain, who's trying to get access to medicinal cannabis. And you can see that the actual action to implement it and make it real for people has not happened under this government. Uh, It's a populist government. And you have to be bold in this area of policy. And so it does seem that we're in a bit of a stasis.
0: The Home Office expressed an intention to respond, but unfortunately did not get us their responses in time. We'll publish them on our social media should they come through. Both the failure of historic policies to eradicate or even reduce drug use and the plain fact that racial minorities are disproportionately affected by its criminalisation have led some to argue for radically different approaches.
3: It's this continuing commitment to a failed policy that has been militarized since Richard Nixon in 1971 declared a formal war on drugs.
0: One of them is Dr Kojo Corum, a law professor at Birkbeck College, expert in empire, race and the war on drugs.
3: Since then, we've seen every few years, whether it's Richard Nixon, whether it's Ronald Reagan, whether it's Margaret Thatcher, whether it's John Major, whether it's George Bush, whether it's Bill Clinton, it goes across political divides. We see these politicians come up on stage and declare, we are starting a new war on drugs. Five years later, The United Nations prints out um, the statistics of drug use and associated harms, and they've all gone up every single time. must be the definition of madness to continue doing the same thing and expecting different results.
0: What underpins uh, this policy at its core is the goal of eradicating demand for drugs. Do you think that that in itself is a realistic goal?
3: I don't think that it's realistic and I don't think that it's even desired. I don't think that there is an inherent um, moral failing in the use of particular psychoactive substances. Our assumptions about the dangers of particular substances are socially and historically constructed Their transition into becoming the kind of um, dangerous, sinful, moral failings of drugs over the early 20th century happens specifically because of their association with specific subordinate racial groups in the United States of America primarily. The fact that we called cannabis leaf marijuana was a campaign that was popularized in order to kind of emphasize the drug's Associations with the Mexican-American population that was emergent at that time.
0: And do you think that this double standard continues
4: today?
3: At the last leadership election, I think it was 100% of the final applicants all confessed to, to, to their own history of drug use. From Jeremy Hunt talking about his smoking of cannabis to Rory Hunt talking about, you know, smoking an opium pipe. I don't know where you can get an opium pipe. I've worked in drug policy for a decade. Andrea Letson talking about uses of cannabis, which I don't think anyone believed, but maybe she was just trying to fit in. There is, a long history of mainstream politicians who, as soon as they get into office, talk about well, I experimented with drugs, you know, when I was in boarding school, or I experimented with drugs when I was on my gap year. And, you know, now I realize how terrible it is. And that's why I'm going to clamp down on 16 year olds from Tottenham or Hansworth or Toxteth. Particular people are seen as allowed to experiment, allowed to be hedonistic if they want to, but they're not seen as dangerous or morally failing. Whilst other people, when they're involved with these substances, are seen as inherently dangerous, inherently morally damned, and can only be dealt with with the full force of the law.
0: I want to talk about alternatives. When you explained why the government strategy, in your view, is not evidence-based, you described failed historical policies that it repeats. But are there successful alternative approaches that you feel they're ignoring?
3: Major jurisdictions in the world are looking at alternative drug policies and have implemented alternative drug policies. The example that had been put in place in Portugal in 2000, where they had skyrocketing issues around death from dangerous drugs, infectious diseases, they implemented decriminalisation and those numbers have gone down drastically.
0: Just to clarify the difference between decriminalisation and legalisation, decriminalising drugs means they will no longer be dealt with as a criminal issue, but As a civil issue, much like parking fines, legalising drugs would allow them to be sold at licensed dispensaries, taxed and regulated.
3: The place that has the record drug deaths in Europe is the UK, specifically Scotland. More than anywhere else in Europe, the UK should be leading on drug policy reform but it isn't. Instead, it's Germany that have also legalized cannabis just recently with their new government. It's Malta that have legalized cannabis. It's Italy that's having its referendum later this year. And the United Kingdom is playing last century's game um, for reasons, in my opinion, of kind of party political self-interest.
0: Perhaps it's time to have a more honest conversation about the role of drugs in our society, because they are around us. But not everyone is paying the price. So, why are we nervous to release this episode? Why is this conversation still so taboo? That brings us on to part two of our podcast. Thanks for sticking around.
1: Welcome back to the studio and to media Storm, a podcast that puts people with lived experience at the centre of reporting.
0: Today we are talking about drugs, the war on drugs, and whether the mainstream media could do a better job at covering stories about drugs. With us are some very special guests.
1: Our first guest is the Executive Director of the charity Release, the National Centre of Expertise on Drugs and Drugs Law. Having worked in drug policy for the last 15 years, she is passionate about drug policy reform. Welcome, Neve East. Is- Hi Niamh. Hello, thank you very much for having me.
0: Our second guest works at the International Drug Policy Consortium and leads the development of the Support Don't Punish campaign, a grassroots centred initiative in support of harm reduction and drug policies that prioritise public health and human rights. It's Juan Fernandez. Hi Juan.
6: Hi both. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you both so much for joining us. So we've heard
1: in the first half of the episode about the war on drugs. What would you say is the purpose of the war on drugs or what was the war on drugs meant to do? I think this is
2: probably a complex analysis, but actually when you get down to the core of it, the war on drugs is largely around social and racial control. I think we have to remember that drug prohibition is a a relatively recent phenomenon. We did not always prohibit drugs. And in fact, in London in the 1900s um, and the late 1800s, women would have tea parties with opium. So, I mean, this is a really recent policy. Wow. Let's bring
0: that back. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah.
2: Opium tea was very popular. Um, And so, you know, a lot of it plays into kind of um, international relations and trade agreements. and, And there is a complexity to it. But when we kind of move forward into the, the, the mid-20th century and late 20th century, you could really see a move to using the drug laws as a form of social and racial control. That, for me, is really kind of the the, the genesis of the modern drug laws that we have. It's really not about the drugs, and we would often say that in our work. You know, we, we're, we're up against a hundred-year propaganda war. You know, it's a yeah. hundred years of people telling you these substances are dangerous, they are bad, that they have no therapeutic or medicinal utility, ignoring the cultural and indigenous experience of folks who use these drugs across the world.
6: It is important, I think, also to look at the genesis of the war on drugs globally. It is not only the US elites that are invested in this uh, project. So if we look at, for example, how coca leaf was perceived in Bolivia at the beginning of the 20th century and by the white elites or mixed-race elites. They understood the coca leaf as, inverted commas, um, degrading the cognition of the native populations. We see... uh, very similar experiences here in the UK when the police were already using anti-cannabis laws to raid, for example, the Mangrove restaurant, um, which is where civil rights activists and uh, anti-racist activists in the UK met. So there is no point in the history of the war on drugs where it hasn't served um, white supremacy and racism.
1: In what ways, like in, in practical terms, in real life terms of what's going on, in what ways does the war on drugs affect racial minorities?
2: We would sometimes have kids come over from the local estates who would turn up with handfuls of stop search forms where they had been stopped and searched maybe one, two, three, four times a week. Um, oh and God. the basis for those searches are cannabis and drugs. Can you imagine what that's like as a young person? Humiliating. Oh, mm. totally humiliating, totally. Like it, it's, you lose your freedom for a moment, you um you you then your 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 community sees you being stopped by police so you're perceived as being someone who causes trouble and when we talk about stop and search in the UK you know we talk about it in the context of knife crime and actually only about 10 to 15% of searches regularly are for weapons over 60% of stop and searches are for drugs
6: something something that um i think it's worth mentioning also is once somebody um, so the likelihood that somebody will be prosecuted for that cannabis, for example, for cannabis possession, is 12 times more um, than for whites when it comes to black people. So the disproportion is throughout the criminal legal system. We
2: actually had a call on the helpline from a woman who was in a park in East London. She was getting her R's, you know, exercise and she got up, young black woman in her 30s. She got up and she was tucking in her shirt into her jeans, you know, the way you do. Mm. And police saw her, went over and said to her, we think you're trying to conceal drugs. We're going to carry out a stop search, carried out a stop search, find no drugs. And then they uh, decided that they weren't satisfied with that. And they felt that there were grounds to carry out a strip search. And they took her to the police station where she was fully strip searched by police. Um, and, and just think of the context of that, a park, nobody around her small amounts of drugs if there was any and there wasn't you imagine the trauma that she went through you mean so she rings our helpline and is totally traumatized this was someone who had been previously sexually abused you know she had just come out of counseling for it and that was her experience of the
0: police and i wonder how many of our white listeners would expect that to happen to them on a morning jog i guess the i
1: guess the big question then you know even just as we've been talking, we've heard loads of statistics from both of you, loads of evidence, right? I guess the question is then, are our politicians ignoring the evidence? And if so, you know, why? I think an interesting example of this was last month, the mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, he created a plan that meant that young people caught with some class B drugs in a small minority of London boroughs would avoid prosecution, it was reported that this plan included cannabis, ketamine and speed. There was a lot of reporting that stated the mayor was moving to decriminalise drugs in the capital. And then the mayor almost had to like backtrack a little bit. If a significant majority of the evidence points towards the fact that the war on drugs does not work, why are politicians so afraid of putting policies in place to decriminalise drugs?
6: I think there's there's two things that come to mind. The first is we need to interrogate the idea that the war on drugs doesn't work because it works very well when it comes to serving as a mechanism by which racialized and minoritized communities are um, prosecuted and um, involved in the criminal legal system. So in that sense, it is working. Now, the stated goal of um, prohibition, according to the international conventions, is the health and welfare of humankind. And in that sense, yes, the... War on drugs is a catastrophe. Also, let's be clear, most people who use drugs do not need to go through a treatment or education programme. They mostly need to have access in case they ever need to um, have recourse to those services. But we need to completely end this idea and and commit to a response to drugs that is about promoting health, promoting rights, um, rather than punishment and neglect.
0: I can think of a third possible cause for the war on drugs. You mentioned social control. You mentioned actually improving public health. What about scoring well with voters? Do you think that's a factor? I mean, last week, Labour's shadow justice secretary, Steve Reed suggested a naming and shaming scheme against people who buy recreational drugs. Does the war on drugs score with voters?
2: I personally think that um politicians are are well behind the curve on this one. I think actually what we're seeing is a much more informed public, largely because of the work of organizations like ours. And I think we should own that.
6: It reminds me of a quote by a federal judge in Chile who said, uh, criminalization is the best way for politicians to say that they're doing something without doing anything. And that is basically what um, these declarations do, pander to this idea that justice should be associated with punishment, Mm -hmm. when in reality, punishment doesn't deliver justice.
2: And I think one brings up a really great point about how the drug policy and drug prohibition and the drugs trade can be utilised by politicians as a way of excusing policies, social policies that they've created. The last 10 years, we have gone through the most punishing austerity that has seen youth centers closed, that has seen educational maintenance grants taken away, that has seen exclusions at school, which are also driven around kind of racialized um, narratives of of unruly black kids that can't be looked after. And so they need to be pushed out of school. Those are the problems. And those, those problems are created by government. But government has this very useful excuse of going, oh, it wasn't us. Look over there. Look over there. It's the drugs trade, not our fault, not our policies.
0: So that connection, that trend that you've just pointed out, yeah. if we look at statistics and how statistics are used, the government and the press will often point to connections between drug use and crime rates, drugs and homelessness, drugs and health crises. And these are used to justify increasingly harsh criminal policies against drugs. But if we contextualise those statistics, we see that, since we've proactively criminalized drugs, all those statistics have actually gotten worse. So in context, that data seems to argue against the policies they're being used to support. So does the media need to do a better job at contextualizing these statistics?
2: Totally, and I think, I mean, there's a really great piece of research that actually comes from the Home Office (laughs) um, that was published in 2017, which is an evaluation of the previous drug strategy. That evaluation said that we spend 1.6 billion every year on law enforcement to tackle the drugs trade. Mm. They conclude, the Home Office concludes, that it has little to no impact on the availability of drugs. Wow.
6: I think, like, it's what you were alluding to about the responsibility of journalists is incredibly important. I remember, for example, a couple of years ago, there was a um, moment in the media where we started observing that people were coming into harm because of their use of GHB, for example. This was a drug that was particularly used in among queer and trans communities. And it felt like the only response from journalists was to report on this uh, through unadulterated accounts from government and police. Um, and so you would hear that this was a destructive, awful, almost demonic drug, when in reality, there's swathes of people using it. Um, it is an incredibly risky substance to use. But the response then was increasing the scheduling of GHB, which only makes the market even more precarious and unstable. So I think there's definitely a role for journalists to look at what comes from government with a level of um, healthy um, skepticism. <laughs> yes, yes, completely. Journalism,
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Talking to the people actually involved,
6: yeah, exactly. But
2: to, you know, I have to say also, the media has probably improved in the last fifteen years. You mm. know, in this space, I, I think we are seeing better reporting and more balanced reporting, yeah. and that there is more openness to talking about. Alternative approaches and allowing our voices in that space. So, like, we do get quoted in all the main press stories. Yeah, The yes. Guardian, The Economist Everybody. have yeah.
1: taken an editorial stance yeah. in favour of yeah, and that, that's, that's something cannabis, that you
2: wouldn't yeah. have seen in the, the early noughties.
1: Well. I think this is a perfect time to take a look into how the media report on drugs and drug and people who use drugs. It is really heartening to hear how it has improved. There is still a distinct lack of lived experience voices, and there are still some common terms used, especially in tabloid papers, mm-hmm. such as crackhead or junkie is used a lot. Um What messages do those words send?
6: I think they're literally meant to authorize and to create the impression that there's an us and there's a them and the them tend to be uh, untrustworthy, marginal, dangerous. And usually that demonization aligns itself along um, class and race and gender divides. So I think... This language, this stigmatizing language, is there to um, substantiate this war on drugs and to make people believe that there's a subset of the population that's underserving of care and attention. I, th- I think what this country needs when it comes to, and, and all countries, when it comes to drug policy is a revolution of care. We need to start understanding that we are responsible for each other. Um, And to believe that there are certain subsets of the population that do not deserve care, that are sort of ungrievable if they die, is incredibly concerning. If that is the the line of travel that we're adopting as a society, and definitely journalism has a responsibility to contribute to that positive change.
1: Well, just as important as words are pictures, and often in articles we'll see a depiction of people who take drugs kind of like these like hooded youths down a dark alleyway. Um, or if there are pictures of the drugs themselves, say a story on drug oh. dealing, um, they'll use a picture of like loads of pills and loads of cocaine and loads of heroin, <laughs> like all in one picture, um, which is kind of like an unlikely amount of drugs for a drug dealer <laughs> to have. It's uh-huh. a
2: manipulation. And, you know, it's. It, I think these things are done as drug scares. Um and does that work? I let's look at prevalence around drug
6: use. No. And I read a really compelling article that suggests that it might be doing the opposite. Because if yeah. you if you look if all the images that appear on uh journals and newspapers are of like ridiculous amounts of drugs, you might be convinced to think using drugs is about using loads whereas that doesn't. i barely using any. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas the, what we want is for people to be more responsible, more caring, more careful about their drug use um, and to have access to the means to ensure that. So I think these representations are all kinds of negative, are uh, ineffective when it comes to reducing prevalence and they do not communicate anything about how to reduce harms around drug use.
0: Time now to look at some of the recent articles that have been making headlines. We're going to start with this from The Mirror. I'll read the headline out. (laughs) Troubled Ryland Clark caught on film demanding Gimme the gear, prompting drug fears. I feel like we see this in some form or other all the time. Headlines about various celebrities snorting suspicious white powder or framed as troubled for taking drugs. This moral outrage we see expressed by mostly tabloids. Is it in the public interest? I mean, from a technical journalistic measure, it's, it's criminal, which makes it in the public interest. But is it actually in the public interest?
2: Well, first of all, it's not criminal. He didn't actually have drugs on his possession mm. saying give me drugs is not a criminal offense so you know it's a non-story to mm, start that's with true. Mm. um secondly it was on the front page of the mirror which was really disappointing considering their reporting has been so good in other areas recently yes. not namely parties in other parts of the country <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um so you know i saw this on the sunday morning on twitter the fee goes you check who's threatening you know and you read the story and you're like oh, this is not great journalism it's not really front page news. It's not news, um, but then you started to see the comments in on social media. I was actually really heartbroken. Right, it was it. really
1: uplifting. It wasn't was really it? Great. Twitter, like, it for really the first time, <laughs> time ever banded together <laughs> to, for to defend Ryland. Ryland. <laughs> <laughs> the nation's sweetheart. <laughs> totally,
2: but they were also. It's a non-story. Yeah. This is a non-story from the point of view of well, it might not be a criminal offense, and even if he took drugs. Lots of people take drugs. And it
0: shows that disjuncture you pointed yeah, out between absolutely. maybe the people are way ahead absolutely. of the policy makers and the press makers on this. Absolutely.
2: Topic. I think that was really telling for me. The other element, the second one, was in the story. He's like, I would never use uh, drugs. I only drink alcohol. <laughs> alcohol's my thing. And it's like, alcohol's a drug too. And you know, if, if we know anything, alcohol is probably the most harmful drug out there. And that's, you know, to be fair to Ryland, the nation's sweetheart, um, you know, that's also. <laughs> So often what you see is people deflecting and saying, I'm not using illicit substances. I'm using legal substances. Mm, because they have to. Yeah. You know, alcohol will damage your organs if you drink too much of it. That happens. That's, that's a fact. Heroin doesn't did you, you know heroin actually really? doesn't cause any harm to any internal organ it's the root of administration that is associated with harm so it's oh. injecting No way. i'm not saying it doesn't cause harm but i'm saying the difference that we have in the conversation around these two substances is fascinating yeah. we that just is accept fascinating. we
0: just accept yeah this, uh, that it's story, destroying that alcohol, your body and yeah heroin bad
1: yeah yeah
2: and yeah. it's just not a story it's and it's not, just not a story.
1: story. <laughs> Let's move on to this from The Sun then. Drug tragedy. Girl, 16, died after taking MDMA with pals who didn't call ambulance for two hours. I say it like that because two hours is in capital letters. Um, as they didn't want to get in trouble. This is the story of Lauren Hawkins, who it was revealed died in 2020 from what was reported uh, as a lethal dose of MDMA. Um, I feel like there's many things wrong with this article, but overwhelmingly I felt it was that this article essentially blames Lauren's teenage friends for being too scared to call an ambulance, um, and for exposing her to drugs in, in the first place. Um, what, what were your thoughts on this?
6: The article could have mentioned, for example, that, um, an unstable supply is associated with harm. The article could have talked about how criminalization deters people from accessing services and potentially is a huge contributing factor to this person actually dying, which is absolutely terrible. I picked up on an expression that is in the article about um, using drugs being like a Russian roulette, um, which I think deserves its own sort of consideration because I... I understand that, especially because of what I just said, you don't know exactly what you're taking because of the policies and the lack of access to programs. You don't know what you're taking, and thus there's a level of um, uncertainty there. But there's a neuroscientist in the US, Dr. Carl Hart, who says this idea of drugs as a Russian roulette is completely absurd. These are molecules of very predictable impact on your body. Like it's, they're not magical substances that will change. Of course, they're mediated by who you are, how your bi- biology um, reacts to certain substances. But they're there is a predictability to ingesting a molecule um, of known content and potency. And what's happening is people are denied information about what they're putting in their bodies and then blamed for not having that information, which I find absolutely, again, going to the hypocrisy and, and cruelty of, of these uh, policies and, and politics.
2: You mean, what was it that those two children, and these are children, you know, let's put it into context. Who were terrified of calling the poli- calling an ambulance because they thought the police would come as well. That actually happens. Doesn't happen in every case, but it does happen. We've had cases through our helpline um, where we've had people who have witnessed an overdose, called the ambulance, the police have come, and they've been arrested with possession for possession with intent to supply, so a supply charge. So that carries very grave legal consequences, and that is not. A public health approach to drugs. That is the opposite of a public health approach. The lack of a cohesive legal uh, policy in this space is contributing to deaths. We could easily tomorrow have police forces across the country come together and say we have guidance that says in no case are the police to arrest someone who has reported an overdose. That would be an easy, easy thing to achieve.
0: Something this article did that I think is also done in every story we see about a young person dying at a festival in circumstances such as these is it kind of strips her it makes her the unwitting victim strips her of any agency you know it's shocking that you know she never touched these things and it's either it's always the boyfriend or the friends or some shady dealers that are manipulating teenagers into making these choices why are we so afraid to admit the reality that Children and teenagers are choosing to take these substances yep. all the time. Like, Why do we need to tell ourselves that story? I don't think that that is an accurate story.
2: No, I, I agree with you completely. And I think that idea of agency and choice is really important to reinforce in the drugs narrative. And also, you know, I think the idea of pleasure. You know, yeah. we take these substances because they create can create joy they can create connections they they can take us on journeys that you know expand our consciousness mm. you know there are all these different utilities and they for are being it
0: played with in mental health absolutely um, solutions now aren't they yeah. you know yeah. we do know that there is a reason people take drugs and why are we so afraid to ever include that in the story
2: and that that's part of that hundred year propaganda war that we've talked about you know the fact that these substances that could have huge huge impact on treatments for mental health on treatments for post-traumatic stress for you know a range of health and um social problems you know there's there's lots of, of reasons why we would you know use substances and and this whole kind of prohibitionist paradigm has restricted that really interesting experience we could have all had over the last you know decades and maybe we'd be a better society for it. Who knows? Who
0: knows? (laughs) Neve Juan, thank you so much for joining us. This has been so enlightening for me and I'm sure all of our listeners. Can I just ask whether you have anything to plug and where we can follow you? Niamh, take us away.
2: Uh, You can follow Release at release.org.uk. We're obviously on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. It's either Release Drugs or Release-drugs, depending on which medium you're using, Um, but we also run a national helpline. So if people get into trouble with the police, they can give us a call. All those details are on our website. Um, but yeah, just follow our work and, and you know donate if you can. There's not much money in this area. i am I? Can people
1: follow you?
6: Yeah, sure. So if you want to know more about the work of the International Drug Policy Consortium, head to www.idbc.net. And if you want to get involved more uh, actively in this struggle, um, go to supportdonpunish.org. We are on basically all uh, social media: Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Find us, find us there.
1: Thank you for listening. We'll be back with a bonus episode next week featuring more information about drugs and the war against them. And our next episode will be about sex work from lived experience on the 10th of March.
0: Follow MediaStorm wherever you get your podcast, so that you can get access to new episodes as soon as they drop. If you like what you hear, share this episode with someone and leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps more people discover the podcast and our aim is to have as many people as possible hear these voices.
1: You can also follow us on social media Media, at Matilda Mal, at Helena
0: Wardia, and follow the show via at Media Storm Pod. Get in touch and let us know what you'd like us to cover and who you'd like us to speak to. Media Storm, a new podcast from the House
1: of the Guilty Feminist, is part of the Acas Creator Network. It is produced by Tom Silinski and Deborah Frances White. The music is by Sunfire.